Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk a few about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. It's been nearly six months now since the last big UN COP climate conference, COP26, and it, and it looks like there have been several articles that have appeared in the news this week. Looking at how we're doing since the last climate negotiations, what's the verdict so far? Yeah, well, it's a range of uh, verdicts, of course, as we come up to that six-month anniversary. I mean, the first thing to say is there was a, a paper published in the scientific journal Nature this week for the first time actually looked at it and, and said if all the pledges, if, big if, if all the pledges made by countries are implemented uh, in full and on time, temperatures would rise by 1.9 to 2 degrees uh, Celsius. Now, uh, people like you and me, Cara, will know that that's quite significant, that that's the first time really we've seen uh, a calculation of, of pledges that suggest that we could keep global heating to below 2 degrees. Sadly, of course, it's still a long way off trying to keep it below 1.5 degrees. And uh, this same paper suggests that there's now just a 6 to 10% chance of staying under that threshold of 1.5 degrees. Uh, even if, and I say again, big if, if all the pledges made by countries are implemented, uh, all those pledges at COP26. And of course, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is, for example, whether coral reefs still exist or not, whether it makes a difference between tipping into those positive feedback loops where you get ever faster global heating. So it's still a real concern, but it does show perhaps for one of the first times that we might just slowly be edging towards uh, in, uh, increased chances that we can try and hold back uh, global warming. But as I said, it's that big if, isn't it? If uh, actually countries deliver on the pledges that they made in Glasgow and if they do it on time. And there's been reports this week saying how uh, President Joe Biden is really struggling with his climate agenda. He's had many setbacks on this. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback in Congress, of course. Uh, the war in Ukraine has, of course, not helped in any way whatsoever in, in causing countries to try and ramp, ramp up production of oil and gas. And, you know, one of the earliest acts in office for President Biden was a moratorium on new oil and gas leasing on federal land. But that was reversed after a federal court ruling last summer ordered the administration to restart the leasing program for oil and gas and many, many other problems. So uh, just less than six months on from COP26, uh, we do see that there are real problems in implementing what was agreed there. Yeah, that study that you mentioned by the International Energy Agency, you kind of portrayed it as a, a glass half full or a positive thing that actually we, we could stay below that two degrees of warming. But that same study found that carbon dioxide emissions will actually increase between now and 2030 by 13%, they predict, rather than going down by 45%, which is, of course, what, what all the science has been saying we have to do to, to stay below that two degrees of warming. So it's not really a good news story. And, and one of the things that surprised me about that, that study in Nature you mentioned is that we have 154 UN parties that have committed to goals, new mitigation goals between now and 2030, but actually only 76 of them have put forward uh, plans for beyond 2030 into 2050, which which was actually a surprise to me that that so few countries have put longer term goals on the table in these negotiations. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if, if uh, of course, there's just a handful of countries, obviously everyone knows about China and India, if they made sort of uh, stronger long-term uh, pledges, uh, that would be make a big difference to that. But I think actually uh, it, Australia is the one that I think we perhaps should particularly point the finger at. Uh, Australia is a country that could and should be doing better on the pledges it makes. All countries should, of course. We need to see much greater effort from all countries. But there are a few countries, as I said, like Australia, that really stand out for, for not doing more than uh, I think reasonably could be expected of them. And as you say, Cara, the real problem is, is that emissions are still increasing, you know, despite all this effort, despite all these discussions and pledges. You know, until we start to see emissions coming down, uh, then a lot of this just seems to be almost kind of academic. And I've long believed that actually when we turn the corner on that and we start to see emissions coming down, we might surprise how, ourselves how quickly they do after that because you get those kind of uh, feedback loops in a good way in that, you know, when people start to move, say, to uh, electric vehicles and you get a critical mass there, then it becomes ever more encouraging to do so. And the same is when you get those kind of network effects in the energy system as you shift to renewables, the more renewables you have, almost in a funny kind of way, the easier it is to shift to them. But we do have to just turn that corner and start start sending emissions downwards rather than keep heading them upwards as they are at the moment. You mentioned the situation in the US and that article that were, that outlined all of this in the Financial Times this week about the White House being forced to defend Biden's climate agenda after setbacks. It, it was pretty scary. It's like, you know, we've talked about the, the energy crisis here on this side of the pond because of the crisis in the Ukraine and the spiraling energy uh, prices. But actually, it's a supersized situation in the US where Biden has been forced to release 180 million barrels of oil from the U.S. emergency stockpile and proceed, uh, plead with oil producers to boost production. So this crisis is is rolling back on a lot of the big uh, climate plans that they've had. And it's looking like he's going to have a huge uphill battle uh, to try and convince the public that he will achieve the climate goals that he set out in his campaign. In fact, I noticed that, that Biden is off to Seattle this week and, and doing a lot around Earth Day to try and reassure voters that he will be able to achieve those climate plans as promised. But it it looks like a huge challenge for them. Yeah, it is an absolutely huge challenge. And and even with the Senate as it is right now, uh, you know, he's still very dependent on one or two votes. And in particular, there's uh, Senator Joe Manchin, who's sort of the most conservative Democrat, if you like, in the Senate and is a key swing vote in that very narrowly divided chamber. And he effectively torpedoed a lot of Biden's legislative climate proposals last year. Uh, you remember all those proposals around what they, it was the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better package. And, um, Matt, you know, to get any of these through, uh, Joe Biden is going to need Senator Manchin's backing. Um, but that's actually before we get to the midterms uh, in November this year, Carl, where it's likely that Democrats will do pretty badly um, and will, you know, actually we end up with a, a, a Congress which is even more uh, uh, difficult for Joe Biden to get anything through. So it's not looking great, I'm sorry to say, in terms of the US moving forward on the climate agenda. And that is, as I said, just less than six months after COP26. So really concerning. Yeah. And now, of course, we can't forget that in the middle of a climate crisis, we also have a biodiversity crisis to solve. And we've reported earlier in this show about the possibility of an international agreement on biodiversity that might be on the horizon, similar to our international climate agreements. What's the latest news on that process, Greg? 
Well, I think the real focus in the debate around biodiversity for a long time is to be been trying to find a target that is kind of equivalent to the 1.5 degree target that we have on climate, which despite all its problems, at least provides that clarity of focus for politicians to negotiate over. And uh, the, what is good news is we're starting to get, build some kind of consensus in the international negotiations around a target called 30 by 30, which is the idea that we need to get 30% of global land and sea area set aside for nature by the end of this decade, by 2030. And there's good science behind this. It's kind of estimated that that's the least that is needed uh, to enable biodiversity to start to recover, to restore uh, ecosystem processes. Of course, it can't just be a big lump of 30% somewhere in the world and the rest of the world be trash. It's, it really only works if we can try and make 30 by 30 work at kind of all levels, at regional levels, at national levels, and at sort of global regional levels as well. But it's a kind of not a bad yardstick for thinking through how we can try and reverse uh, the loss of nature and the, and the biodiversity crisis more widely. And there is get it building sort of support for this. And the hope is that when countries meet at the Convention on Biological Diversity meeting in China later this year, they will be able to agree on the need to adopt such a target and work towards it. Just the same as with the climate talks, Cara, does that mean it's going to happen? Well, that's another issue entirely, isn't it? 30 and more years of, the, of negotiating, I think. Many like. more years. And, it, and it's worth saying there are some, some people that oppose the 30 by 30 target as well, um, particularly uh, organisations like Survival International say that it, it, it might really push, uh, there's a danger that it's a sort of form of eco-colonialism, that it might push uh, local communities off their land to make way for nature and so on. I mean, I think those people that support 30 by 30, like myself, would say, of course, it's got to be done right. Of course, this is about uh, nature alongside people and particularly indigenous communities who are often the very best place to defend nature anyway. Um, but it just shows there's a lot of debate around this. And uh, I think we'll see a lot more attention on it uh, later in the year. And of course, this is all critical to solving the climate problem as well. We can't talk about these issues as if they're completely um, uh, separate. Uh, you know, if we don't preserve biodiversity and particularly things like the Amazon rainforest, we've got no hope in solving climate change either. Yeah. Finally, Craig, one of my favorite topics is in the news a lot this week, this idea of lab-based uh, food or plant-based proteins as alternatives to animal agriculture. It's it's sci-fi stuff, but I, I think it might be the future of food production around the world. It appears that a certain fast food franchise on your side of the RFC is paving the way for this. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So Burger King uh, announced this week that uh, it, it is moving ahead with its sort of all vegan London branch trial in Leicester Square. So would you believe there's been a branch of Burger King in Leicester Square in the heart of London that has been offering only vegan food for a month to test its popularity? Now, it's going to move on from this and go back to its regular menu. But for a whole month, it's just been uh, serving vegan-based food, including plant-based version of its Whopper, as well as a chicken katsu burger and vegan nuggets. And I think it's kind of interesting to do this right at the heart of Leicester Square, isn't it? And there isn't even a choice uh, for, uh, for some of the meat options on the menu there. And uh, I think what's interesting about this is in all the debate about eating less meat, um, I would say that it's actually fast food where you can imagine a reduction in meat consumption. I mean, you know, I'm someone that's worked on this issue for many years. I'm fascinated about it. I still eat meat, you know, but when I eat meat, I want it to be, I want to eat less meat than uh, certainly it used to have done once in the past. And for it to be good quality meat when I do so, I'm not worried about meat 
in, in a case of fast food. And it's really interesting that when you've got, if you've got really good alternatives, whether it's for burgers or for whether it's uh, vegan sausage rolls, that's certainly been very popular in the UK over the last couple of years, for example, um, then I think people are kind of, uh, there, there seems to be quite a good acceptance of this. And that could make a huge difference uh, for the environment if it, if it scales up. And there's lots of different ways to produce this now. Even sea, uh, seaweed is being used to, to try and produce protein that can be used in meat-free alternatives. So I think we're seeing a lot of um, momentum on this agenda. I think it's probably more than a fad now because it's been going for a little while, but I'm sure it will still be a, a cause deep offence to to many listeners' ears. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned seaweed, and of course we, we have lots of that in both of our countries along the shores here, and I was really surprised to read just how much protein is present in, in seaweed. Up to 30% of it can be protein, which which makes it possible for it to compete against other big protein sources like meat and soya. So that's really one to watch. And another one that, that, that hit the headlines recently in the Financial Times last month was about the possibility of, of synthetic milk, essentially. So using the process of, of precision fermentation, which has been used in pharmaceutical companies for a long time. And it's a process similar to, to the way we brew beer, but actually creating a, a lab-based milk. And this seems to be uh, something that's happening a lot in startups across the UK and Germany, who've been quoted as saying, we're completely cutting cows from the supply chain. So really something that I think that uh, dairy farmers in particular in Ireland need to be keeping a close eye on. It's a bit of a blind spot for us, but it looks like it's an up-and-coming business. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've had, you know, alternatives, milk alternatives for a while, like oat milk and soya milk and so on, and then perhaps more recently, hemp milk, pea milk, even potato milk. But this was a new one to me, uh, as you say, lab-grown uh, milk uh, through precise fermentation. And I do think it's kind of interesting. I, I think with all of these, it's a little bit like, uh, I would say, it's a bit like how email didn't replace, completely replace post. I think actually uh, lab-grown meat, lab-grown milk, or sort of meat alternatives, milk alternatives, I think there's a potential for them to take a really big role in the market. I don't think they will completely replace uh, milk from cows or indeed uh, meat grown well and to high quality and to high animal welfare standards. But I think the long-term trend is in that direction, and you would hope. And I actually think, don't think it's necessarily bad for farmers because I think um, that what it means is farmers that are producing really good quality milk, really good quality uh, meat uh, uh, will do well out of it. And actually there's opportunities for others to grow all these other alternatives as well and be part of that solution. Um, but I realise it might be quite sort of frightening to some farmers to hear this, but I do think change is happening. And I personally have been surprised how quickly this kind of move uh, to to meat free foods or to reduce meat foods at least and indeed now alternative milks has, has taken hold yeah you mentioned uh, email versus post unfortunately email didn't make our work lives any easier so no. i'm not sure if this <laughs> will make our our food lives or our dietary lives any easier either but it's definitely something to watch thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news craig Thanks, Carl. I'll speak next week. Absolutely. After the break, we'll clear up all confusion about the turf wars raised in Ireland this week.